0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction and the universe and jelly beans and everything. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, the author of a new writing advice book called Never Say You Can't Survive, a young adult novel called Victories Greater Than Death, and a forthcoming short story collection called Even Greater Mistakes,
1: And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist and science fiction author, and my most recent book is a piece of science journalism that's called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about disability and speculative fiction. Science fiction and fantasy are full of portrayals of disabled bodies, some of which are nuanced and positive, and many of which aren't. Why does science fiction keep wanting to fix disabled people or turn them into inspirational superheroes instead of just letting them be people. To get deeper into this, we're going to be joined by the amazing, incredible Elsa Hunason, author of the brand new book, Being Seen. And also, as our audio extra next week, we'll be talking about our favorite copycats of James Bond. Which reminds me, did you know that our patrons get audio extras after every episode? Plus, essays, reviews, and access to our Discord channel. It's all amazing, and it can be yours for just a few bucks a month. This podcast is entirely supported by you, the listener, so anything you give goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. Find us at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. Let's get started. So excited to be joined today by Elsa Hunason, the first DeafBlind person to win a Hugo Award. She's the co-editor of Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction, and her work has been published in CNN, the Boston Globe, Metro UK, and Tor.com. Elsa has been a finalist for Best Fan Writer and Best Semi-Prosine Hugo Awards, a winner of the D. Franklin Defying Doomsday Award, and a finalist for the Best Game Writing Nebula Award. She has worked with New Jersey 11th for Change in the New York Disability Pride Parade And her new book, which is amazing, is called Being Seen. Thank you so much for joining us, Elsa.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is such a delight.
0: Yay. So first of all, why did you think it was so important for you to co-edit that volume, Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction?
2: So when I was asked to co-edit the project, I was asked to edit the nonfiction section. And I was really excited about it because... There are not a lot of critical spaces for disabled people to tell their stories when it comes to interacting with the media that we're being depicted in, if that makes sense. Like, we don't often have the space to talk about it. And so I was really excited to be able to give sort of a forum to a population of people that don't often get heard to really comment on the ways that we're being depicted, the ways that we're being described, and how that affects us and how we want to be seen which goes back to the title of my book, but just that's a theme. How disabled people are viewed is something that only we, we can really speak to. And so I was really honored and excited that I had the opportunity to facilitate that for people from my community.
1: So one of the things that you say uh, in your book is that science fiction has a eugenics problem. And this is something we've talked about a number of times on this podcast about how eugenics is tied to the history of science fiction. And I want you to talk us through how this plays out, especially in regards to disabled people.
2: Well, uh, the way that it plays out in regards to disabled people is think about how many times you've seen a disabled body in science fiction. And then think about how many times that disabled body has been augmented to be better or to be fixed. How many times that disabled body has been co opted for science? How many times has that disabled body not been autonomous? And that's really the backbone of eugenics is removing autonomy and self expression from disabled people and from not allowing us to form communities. So often you will see one lone disabled character in a science fiction or fantasy novel, and they will sort of be off in their own world and they won't have people. And so that too is eugenics. And I think it really does come from the idea that non-disabled authors have a really hard time imagining that disabled people want to live in the bodies that we have, in the, in the conditions that we live in. And so they assume Because this is what eugenics tells you, that disabled people would rather be dead or be fixed.
1: Yeah, it makes me think about how in Star Trek, The Next Generation, how we meet Geordi, who's blind, but we never see him like hanging around with all the other disabled people on the Enterprise. Like they don't ever, it's never like, and here's all my buds. And like they have, you know, other kinds of, you know, disabilities. It's just like, it's Geordi and that's it.
2: And not only is it Jordy, and that's it, but Jordy has a visor that sort of circumnavigates his disability, which I I think that Jordy is cool. Like I love the idea of the visor. I can see that existing in a cyberpunk or futuristic setting, but I also want to recognize that like, that's often the only depiction that you have of a blind person in space. You don't have blind people using adaptive devices that don't circumnavigate their disability. And that's actually a piece of eugenics too, is the idea that we can't survive in the bodies that we have and that we need to adapt to be like disab- non-disabled people.
0: Yeah. And so actually, I wanted to ask about Geordie because you are very critical about Geordie in the book. And I wanted to ask, what is the difference between a good depiction of assistive technology versus one that kind of erases the disability? And on a similar note, you, you kind of talk about how you love Toph from The Last Airbender, but you don't really love Daredevil. And I'm just, what's the difference there? Like, can you just tease out those things for us?
2: So Toph, I love Toph because Toph has a magical ability that is an adaptive device. She still can't see. Like, she's not going to be able to see anything, but she can feel things under her feet. She can manipulate the space around her to make it accessible for her. The difference between that and Daredevil is that Daredevil, we get these visual... And this is part of what's interesting is that I can critique it on the level of what the film is doing. Because the film is never showing us that Toph can see. But Daredevil does. We get these visions of like a red world that Daredevil can sort of see in and how he senses things. And that circumnavigates his disability and it makes... Non-disabled viewers say that Daredevil isn't blind. And that's actually the biggest thing, is how audiences react to the character. I have never heard a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender tell me that Toph isn't blind. Everybody Mm. accepts that Toph is blind. I have had people at conventions tell me that Daredevil isn't blind for a decade.
0: And so it's a similar thing with assistive technology. Like you feel like if it if it makes it so that you don't even feel like the person is disabled, that's like where it crosses the line for you?
2: I think so. I mean, because a disabled body a disabled body is different from a non-disabled body. Like I, I move through space differently. I experience the world differently. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that it's a different experience. And I think when we force disabled bodies to conform to the non-disabled experience, that's when things start to fall apart for me because non-disabled people then just can write a a non-disabled character and say that they're disabled even though they don't have the experience of disability because they have these adaptive aids. Does that make
0: sense outside of my head? Yeah, no, that makes total sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it kind of brings up what we've been dancing around, which is this idea that you see all over the place of disabled people who also have superpowers, like sort of how Mm -hmm. Geordi can see in other parts of the light spectrum because of his hairband over his eyes, Daredevil sees in this, like, whatever that world is. So what is the problem with doing that? And, And also, I think more importantly, how do we get out of that? Like, how do we have superpowered disabled characters where the powers don't like erase their disability.
2: Well, I think the way that you have a superhero who's disabled where their power doesn't erase the disability is to not have the superpower relate to the disability. Right. So like a blind character who can do telekinesis and they maybe understand spatial skills differently, or they have echolocation, which still means you have to pay attention oh, to the nice. surroundings. Mm-hmm. Like, all of that would be fine. It's when it's when the disability is being effectively solved by the superpower that you have a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: the daredevil model.
2: Yeah. And Kofs is literally an adaptive aid.
0: Right. So in your book, one of the things you say is that horror is the worst genre to be disabled in. Why? What is it about horror? Why is that the case? Horror uh,
2: just has so many facets of awfulness when it comes to disability. If you're a woman in horror, you are 90% sure to be the victim. And if you're a disabled woman in horror, it is just your fear is part of what makes horror work. We see it in Red Dragon where there is a blind woman who is effectively is in a relationship with a serial killer. And she doesn't know because she can't see who he is.
0: Oh, right. And the
2: horror there is that she can't identify this person because she can't see in hush. It's a home invasion story where a deaf woman who lives by herself in the woods is being stalked by this man in her house. She can't hear him the horror is literally hinging on the fact that she can't hear him. So the viewer is afraid because she doesn't have hearing. But there's also that sense of relief for non-disabled viewers that, oh, this would never happen to me because I can hear or I can see. And I think that that causes a lot of harm. Uh, There is one exception, which I didn't actually get to write about in the book, that I'm really excited to cover, which is the, the horror movie Run which came out in 2020. And it is a horror movie that is about caregiver murder and abuse. Oh, and It's about a wheelchair using woman whose mother is a narcissist and is one of the best depictions of, of disabled women I have ever seen. It actually works. So I'm actually really excited to be able to tell people there is a horror movie that is actually... Not kind to disabled women, but it does actually depict the experience extremely well.
1: Is it that her mom is abusing her? Is that the scenario? Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. Her mother is abusive. I don't want to say too much else, but like
2: it actually worked because I was not feeling like her disability was the thing that made her weak and it wasn't the thing that the movie was hinging on to make us feel fear.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's kind of the flip side of what you're saying about the superpowers is, you know, Mm -hmm. if you turn the disability into the thing that makes the horror possible, that's when it gets toxic. Exactly.
0: Right. But
2: it works for men too. Being seen is primarily about what it's like to be identifying as, this is one of those tricky spaces because it is primarily about women and like, I talk about this a little bit in the book, that gender and disability is really tricky. But men tend to be the monsters when it comes to horror. They tend the don't breathe, which now has a sequel. It is a home invasion movie again, but this time the blind man is monster and the home invaders are the people who should be scared out of their wits because he has superhuman hearing.
0: Oh no, oh my gosh.
2: So he basically hunts them through the house and kills them and also ends up being a rapist. So either you're a victim or you're the monster. There is no in-between in horror except for this one movie.
0: (sighs) Yeah, and I was going to say, actually, that leads into my next question, which was like, I feel like one of the things in science fiction is that All too often, disabled people are the bad guys. They're the villains. They're the kind of terrifying, you know, whether it's people, you talk about this in your book, whether it's people who have some kind of, maybe they have burn scars on their faces or they have some kind of facial difference or, you know, I've lost count of how many people in wheelchairs turn out to be like the bad guy or the monster or whatever.
2: In The Kingsman, it's the woman with the cheetah feet who is like the crazy assassin, in the new right. James Bond movie, it's a dude with facial scarring. Like, it just goes on right. and on and on. I mean, the most recognizable villain in science fiction is Darth Vader, and he's absolutely disabled.
0: Yeah, you go through all the Star Wars characters, and you're like, well, here's like 10 Star Wars characters who have disabilities of various types, and only Yoda, who, you know, it's kind of a, a limit, an edge case— Yoda and like one other character are are okay, but everybody else, there's just like a yeah, string.
2: Sure, sure, in a way, he's the other one who's not a villain,
0: <laughs> right? Which I'm not familiar with that character, I guess. And Saw Gerrera is a little bit complicated, but yeah, Darth Vader, like you talk about how his breathing apparatus is like this, you know, it's scary because he needs an assistive device to breathe, and it's like this scary noise that he makes.
2: And like that sound is a sound that literally everybody on the planet now associates with scary guy who can choke you from six feet away.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's that's an issue. That's so a it's problem.
1: demonizing both the disabled person and the assistive device that they're using. Yes.
2: One hundred percent.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we've been talking about like demonizing disabled people, but what are some of the other tropes in speculative fiction that just piss you off the most? Like, is there one that just, or two that just really stand out as like, please stop doing that?
2: I mean, I could really go without the magical cures. I'm really done. Yeah. Like, I just, and it's complicated, right? Because some disabled people do want cures and I don't want to erase. There are people who would really, really like it if they could just wave a magic wand. A lot of the people I know who wish that they could wave a magic wand are in extreme pain that they cannot escape. And so I fully empathize with wanting to not be in pain. I'm right there with them. If I could wave a magic wand and my PTSD would go away, I would absolutely do that in a heartbeat. But magical cure narratives sort of skip over the idea that there's any kind of healing period or adjustment from being disabled to being non-disabled. And that's really, really toxic because it prioritizes an able body as the only good body that can exist. And it undercuts that one might be comfortable in a disabled body or even happy.
0: Yeah. I've
2: been deafblind since I was four months old because uh, I lost my vision within the first few months that I was alive. I've never been able to see out of two eyes consciously. So how long would it take me to see out of two eyes? I don't know. Years?
0: Right. Yeah. And there, there was a string of stories for a while there, like, you know, Avatar and also lost with the character of Locke. There was a whole string of stories where people do get a miracle cure for their disability. And it's like this, Mm -hmm. it's presented as just like this unalloyed good that, you know, you can be a giant blue cat guy. And like, it's kind of complicated. So, wrapping up this segment, final question. In the book you there are things that you do praise, like you you like how Game of Thrones deals with disability. You like the character of Miles Forkosian and you also say a lot of nice things about the movie A Quiet Place. What is it mm-hmm. about those stories in particular that makes them better than the usual representations in speculative fiction?
2: So in Game of Thrones, it was the fact that there were actual disabled people playing disabled characters, and that makes a huge difference Mm -hmm. to the storytelling on the screen. But I also feel like it was realistic because so often books that take place in high fantasy settings or books that take place even in historical settings don't have disabled people, Mm -hmm. which is about as inaccurate as you can get. Because if you're living in a world that doesn't have a whole lot of medical care, you're going to have a lot of disabled people. (laughs) Right. You fall off a horse and you break your spine and it's 1540. Either you're dead or you're never walking the same again.
0: Right, right.
2: So the idea that everybody is sort of magically perfect and fine doesn't work. So that's part of what made Game of Thrones work is, you know, there are a lot of things that... I don't love Game of Thrones 4, but that one, I was like, well, this actually works. The idea that there are this many disabled people is accurate, and it feels really good to see that many disabled characters, some of whom are in power, some of whom are making bad choices, some of whom are having sex, which almost never happens. Like, it actually... Right. they, They are people. A Quiet Place 1 and 2 also had a deaf actor playing a deaf character. But the other thing that really worked for me with that was that it relies on interdependence as a concept, which is a really strong disability community value. And it's the idea that we can't live alone. And we, we sort of have to use the same skills to work together. And so because her family speaks ASL, When they are no longer able to use their voices to communicate because there are giant monsters that will come and kill you if they hear you, her family can speak to each other. It's a survival mechanism. Right. They're suddenly able to live. And that's really powerful to me.
0: That is really cool. So we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Elsa about her book, Being Seen.
1: Music, art, and entertainment inspire each of us in different ways. But have you ever wondered what inspires the people who create our cultural
0: touchstones? On The Spark Parade Podcast, your host, Adam Unz, talks with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration, everything from Shakespeare and South Park to Missy Elliott and Lovecraft Country.
1: You'll hear from creatives such as Yasser Lester, Connor Oberst, Chris Gethard, and Adrian Young.
0: Be sure to check out The Spark Parade to see what will spark the inspiration in you.
1: Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: So Elsa, you know, first of all, I love Being Seen. It's such a powerful book. I'm really glad that it's it's coming out in the world and that more people can read it. What made you want to write this book?
2: So... I've been doing a lot of talking about disability in media for almost 10 years at this point. And I'd done I'd watched enough movies and read enough books that I kind of was coming to a conclusion of a sort about what was going on. And the conclusion that I ultimately came to was that the way that we depict disabled women in media was breaking the way that people look at us and can identify us and can relate to us in the real world. I, I can't tell you the number of times somebody has come up to me and said, but but if you're deafblind, you're not like Helen Keller, how, how can you be deafblind? And it's that the, the archetypes that people just have sort of pasted onto disabled bodies have really hurt the way that we can be a part of society. And so that's why I wrote Being Seen, because I wanted to show people how the media that they were consuming was driving how they saw disabled bodies.
1: Yeah, one of the things you talk about is this idea of the gaze of people looking at you or at disabled people, and you call it the abled gaze. And then there's also a kind of a parallel is this concept of how some disabled people can pass as, as non-disabled, whether because they have invisible disabilities or they're, you know, not as disabled as you know, stereotypes would suggest. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about why it's so important to be visible and to come out as disabled.
2: So I talk about this a little bit in the book, but for many of us, we are. We are raised by people who try to talk us out of the reality of bodies. And so I think it's really important for self-identity, for disabled people to accept the bodies that they live in, for one. Right. And I think when we can pass, it's it's a weird thing because I know for many of my trans friends, it's like, yay, I'm passing as my gender. And for disabled people, I think it's actually a negative to pass.
0: I think it's a much more complicated conversation in the trans community, to be honest. But yeah, I know That's I, it's fair. it's it's complicated. Yeah, I mean,
2: it's complicated, and so yeah, like it is more of a negative, I think, in the disabled community because when you pass, that means that sometimes people don't see that you're disabled, and they will actually do harm to you, like. You get out of your car and you're using a handicap placard and someone is like, you're not really disabled. You may be signing up for getting yelled at by a total stranger, you know, who then starts to ask you about your medical history in the middle of the street when you're just trying to go get some ice cream.
0: Oh, yeah, that is is super fun.
2: I think it's really important for people to recognize for themselves that they're disabled, Because it gives you the ability to talk back to people when you do pass. And if you're strong enough in your identity, it makes that an easier thing to deal with in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. So one of the interesting things in the book is you talk about how it's hard to talk about disability without having to route around inspiration. And you talk about how inspirational stories of disabled people are actually a problem. And this kind of comes back to the thing we talked about before with, like, disabled people with superpowers. You know, you have all these stories in the media about, like, a disabled person who climbed Mount Everest or whatever. Why is it a bad thing to have inspirational stories about disabled people?
2: So it's complicated. On the one hand, it's great. People are like, oh, look, a disabled person can do the thing. Yay. But the problem is is that then you start getting asked questions about why you can't do that. Right because going back to this concept of archetypes, right? If the stories that you're seeing about disabled people are always dude climbs Everest, <laughs> another dude trains his own guide dog and does a 5000, you know, elevation hike with his self-trained guide, when he, you know, is lauded for doing these things, we get into this loop of like Anything a disabled person does by themselves is suddenly incredible. And sometimes it comes down to little things like, oh, you're crossing the street by yourself, good for you. So what I think we get into is this cycle of seeing disabled people as inspiring because the default assumption is that we can't. Right. Rather than being inspired by people because they are doing cool things.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. So there's some stuff in your book that's really upsetting and hard to read, like some of the stuff about some of the violence that you've dealt with and abuse and medical discrimination and the mistreatment from the police and just all the different ways that ableism can take a toll on you. What are you hoping that non-disabled people will take away from reading about all this you know, upsetting stuff?
2: Well, the first thing I'm hoping is that they stop perpetuating the things that they're doing unintentionally because I think that some of the things I'm writing about are significantly unintentional. Like that, the harm that they're doing isn't actually, oh, I'm gonna you know, hurt a disabled person today. It's that toxic ableism that sort of seeps through. Some of the most horrific ableism I've experienced has been from people who I've known for years who just don't know any better. But I also hope that non-disabled people start to see how systemic it is, because I do talk about institutions talk about the medical industrial complex and what harm it's doing and I hope people start thinking about how the medical system is harming disabled people because they have may have no idea they may also have no idea about the fact that the police are harming disabled people at a significant it, and one thing I'd really like for people to take away from that section is to never call the cops on a disabled person again
1: Yeah. I mean, what's an example of when you say uh, disabled people are being harmed by the medical establishment, what's a good example of that, that people can kind of hold in their minds as a, as a template?
2: So, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot that the average person can do except continuing to push our government to create better healthcare. Because right now you're disabled fellow citizens are paying more for their insurance through the marketplace than you are if they can't get on Medicare. And our insurance companies don't pay for things like wheelchairs or hearing aids. Like I paid for my hearing aids out of pocket. They don't pay for those because they're considered a non-essential medical expense.
0: That's insane. Yeah, it
2: is. It's completely nuts. It is bonkers. The idea that we are told we must wear hearing aids to comply with hearing society, and yet it's not actually paid for by our insurance, I don't know. But most non-disabled people don't know that until they have to buy hearing aids for their parents.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's been this move to make hearing aids available as an over-the-counter technology, which would be a lot cheaper, and that's been this huge controversy. And I was, I was just reading about that today in the Washington Post, that there's finally going to be a bill that will hopefully allow people to buy cheaper hearing aids over the counter without permission from their doctor, which again is just so bizarre. Like, why do you need, why do you need a doctor to verify that you want to get hearing aids? Like, if you're having a hard time hearing, then you should just get some hearing aids. Like, you know, it's ridiculous.
2: I think it's about control. I mean, I do see that a lot of the things that people do that, well, not that just people do, but the things that society does around disability often centers around the idea of controlling disabled experience. This is why, for example, you will see residential facilities having conversations about whether or not their adult disabled residents are allowed to have sex. Yeah. This is why you yeah. will have oh, doctors like deciding whether or not you can buy your hearing aids over the counter. Like there's no trust in place. And also there's a certain amount of your, you need to be taken care of because you're disabled.
0: Right, so final question, because this is a science fiction podcast, I wanted to kind of bring it back around and ask, you know, what's your optimistic scenario for like the future of disability? What would you like to see in the world of a hundred years from now?
2: I love this question. Yay! In a hundred years, I want to see architecture completely changed. Yeah. Because the way that our buildings are currently built are not built with a framework for disabled people. So the idea that you never have to go through the back entrance of any building to get inside if you have a wheelchair, that's one. Our transit systems would have to be completely revolutionized. I actually saw a first step. I was in New York last week, and I hadn't been back since 2020. And over the announcements on the subway, I heard, this is an accessible station. They didn't have those announcements when I was living there. Those are new. So... The idea that like in a hundred years, maybe one, all of the subway stations are accessible and it's Yeah, just, that'd be nice. <laughs>
0: that would be good. Yeah.
2: You know, and not just twenty-five percent of them <laughs> because <laughs> currently it's twenty-five percent of them. But it's you know, the fact that you don't have to have that announcement because you can assume that you can go everywhere. It's the idea that there is no barrier to access for adaptive aids. Like you don't have to do anything to get hearing aids. You can just go and get them fitted.
0: Right. And I really hope within
2: a hundred years, we have nationalized healthcare like every other rational country
1: on the planet.
0: That would be, that would be really nice. Fingers crossed. Here's hoping. I just
1: want my earbuds to have a hearing aid mode. Like why can't I turn my earbuds into hearing aids? Like I, I I keep
2: asking that question. I'm like, why do AirPods look like hearing aids? Why can't Apple just hearing aids? Yeah, question. turn it into an amplifier.
0: Really good question. So Elsa, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell people where to find you online?
2: So you can find me as Snarkbat literally everywhere on the internet. It's my website. It's my Twitter. It's my Instagram. That's spelled S-N-A-R-K-B-A-T. Yes, I, I echolocate using sarcasm. Um,
0: <laughs> nice.
2: <laughs> find me on November 4th at Elliott Bay Books with Anna Lee talking about Yay! being seen. Yay! Uh, that's also being co-sponsored by the Seattle Public Library. And then you can find mm-hmm. me at Seattle Town Hall on December 8th at 7.30 p.m. And that's being co-sponsored by Third Place Books. Awesome. And that will be in conversation with Megalison. So those are two events where you can find me in conversation with non-disabled people talking about my book.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day and uh, looking forward to seeing you soon. Absolutely. Bye. Thanks. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to answer a couple of questions from you, our beloved listeners. Welcome back. So for our final segment, we wanted to answer a couple of questions from some of our beloved Patreon supporters, which that could be you. Anybody at the Vulcan or higher level can ask us any question and we'll answer it on the podcast. Uh, Just become a Vulcan. recently. Yeah, just become a Vulcan. (laughs) Or wait, I can't remember if it's like what the highest level is. But anyway, so Javier Aviles asks, you know, if society is like a cake with layers that you go on uncovering, the deeper you go, what good does having an archaeological perspective on life bring? And also, you know, why do we need archaeology? How does it help us to have an examined life? And finally, would Star Trek be better if people remembered that Picard was himself an archaeologist? Annalie, what do you think?
1: Yeah. So first of all, yes, I think it would be really interesting if Picard's um, archaeology background came up a little bit more often than just the one time when he like sleeps with a hot archaeologist. And I guess it's Vash. supposed to be that they like bond over their <laughs> shared love of history because actually having a knowledge of deep time and you know where humanity has been really helps us not just plan for the our future, which I think it does, but also just to think through problems in the present because history provides us with so much data about how people dealt with all kinds of problems in the past that we're facing now. For example, um, in my book, Four Lost Cities, I talk about how the Angorian civilization, the Khmer Empire, which was centered in today's Cambodia but really spread across a huge part of Southeast Asia and Thailand and Vietnam and Laos— they were dealing constantly with wildly fluctuating climate and dealing with super dry seasons and super wet seasons. And this is something that in California and large parts of the world now, um, we're starting to see as part of our everyday lives. You know, how do we deal with drought followed by floods, followed by drought, followed by floods? And knowing how people dealt with it in the Khmer Empire a thousand years ago also how they failed to deal with it, all the things they did wrong, um, would be really great for people to be studying right now. And in fact, a lot of the archaeologists who work on the Khmer Empire try to write policy articles that will help people in the present day, Um, even just thinking about things like urban infrastructure, like what do you need in your urban infrastructure and what could go wrong if you build incorrectly. Yeah, and I also think like history is full of... Ingenious ways that people have avoided conflict. You know, there's lots of histories of war, but there's also histories of deal making, peacemaking, coalition building, polyglot societies, multicultural societies. How did those societies work, and how can we borrow some of their innovations? Um, One of my favorite examples of a polyglot society from the past is the culture that grew up along the Silk Roads that connected basically Eastern China with the Middle East and even kind of beyond, you know, eventually kind of stretched into Europe and Africa as well. And these were cultures and cities that were on a trade route. So they were very cosmopolitan. They were full of people who spoke different languages, had really different belief systems, really different kinds of food, and they all coexisted. And we have lots of artifacts from that era, which show that like a town might have a Muslim temple, a Buddhist temple, Jewish temple, and like everybody's just hanging out. It's all good.
0: (laughs) That is awesome.
1: Yeah, so those are all the good things about that archaeological layer cake. And I'm sure that Picard, in the back of his mind, is thinking about a lot of that stuff when he's trying to come up with strategies for dealing with unknown civilizations. That's my headcanon.
0: I'm sure he is. Our other
1: question is from our patron, David Cup. Who says he ran across a comment in a recent Scientific American that said if another spacefaring civilization had established a colony here sometime before 1 million years ago, there's a good chance we wouldn't know it. Um, and he wants to know whether that is actually true. And what does this say about the Fermi paradox? If other races are establishing colonies on worlds, including our own, and then they survive and then they leave. And he compares it to the Vikings uh, with their early settlement in North America. So, Charlie Jane, what do you think? Does it make a difference?
0: I mean, yeah. I think this is the thing that's always bugged me about the Fermi Paradox in particular is this notion that, like, we don't think about time scales. Like, I think for us, a million years is a long time. Uh, it's, you know, it's a lot longer than we've been around. But in the in the grand scale of the cosmos, it's really not very much time at all. and you know, it's not just that other civilizations could be springing up hundreds of light years away. They could also be springing up, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And it would be hard for us to detect any civilization that was that old unless it was so far away that its emissions are still reaching us now. But I think that that is one of the things that people don't often think about when they think about like life outside of our solar system is that the, the time scales for which life could have emerged are are much bigger than people ex- acknowledge. And I wonder sometimes about like whether our civilization will leave anything behind that people can find a million years from now if we cease to exist. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I. this is like one of my very favorite thought experiments, I have to say. Not so much the thing about whether we will leave anything behind because I don't really care um, because whatever. <laughs> Uh, our civilization isn't that great that we need it to be preserved. I like for- it. I
0: like our civilization. I, I don't
1: I know. Do. I do. I like human beings. I want humans to to keep surviving and evolving and, and we becoming invented something Spumoni. cool. Like
0: there has to be something to let the universe know we invented Spumoni.
1: I'm not as excited about Spumoni as I am about, like, maybe some other things that we've done. But I do love thinking about this idea that another civilization evolved on Earth like a billion years ago. Or on Mars, you know, a couple billion years ago. Because now we have a lot of evidence that Mars used to have big bodies of water, could have supported life that was, you know, somewhat recognizable to us as life. Um, You know, it wouldn't have been crystalline entities (laughs) like on Star Trek. But yeah, I think that if there had been some kind of sophisticated civilization that we would recognize, um, and it had, you know, emerged on Earth, like, you know, say, during the Triassic, it was just like 200 million years ago, if that civilization had been building with perishable materials... I don't think we would have any evidence of it whatsoever. You know, I think, including if they actually had genetically engineered dinosaurs to be like their, you know, pack animals or their food animals for that matter. Um, I mean, I guess we could have found if they were actually butchering dinosaurs, we might find signs of butchery on the bones. Um, That's something that we see a lot in archaeology. But they those bones could have been completely ground into dust, and we would we would never know about all those dinosaur barbecues. So I mean, what
0: I, I I love that. I mean, what I want to know, and I, I know we got to wrap this up, but what I want to know is, if there was a previous civilization living on Earth, wouldn't they have like maybe used up more of the fossil fuels? Wouldn't they have maybe dug up more of the like? heavy metals from beneath the ground, wouldn't that some of that stuff have been moved around in ways that we might be able to be like, well, it's weird that all this stuff is closer to the surface than it ought to be, or, you know, something. I don't
1: I don't think so, because that's making a lot of assumptions about it what it means to be a civilization. I mean, just because we exploit fossil fuels doesn't mean that previous civilizations would have. They might have used solar energy, they might have used wind energy, water energy— Um, You know, they could have been near volcanic activity and used, you know, like thermal power. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, this is where this is an exciting thought experiment for me is imagining a civilization that emerges that doesn't exploit the same kinds of resources for energy that we do. Um, or maybe that doesn't even put a value on that kind of energy, ex- you know, consumption. Like maybe they have a very different system of living. You know, maybe they're, right. maybe they fly or maybe, um, you know, they build very, very different kinds of habitats than we do. Maybe they're really small, Like, Mm -hmm. maybe they're the size of mice. I mean, I don't know. Like, this is, again, wild speculation, and I'm sure that there will be evolutionary biologists who are like, no, you could not have a sophisticated civilization made from mice-sized people. The final thing that I would say about this, the other piece um, that always excites me, is thinking about whether or not those civilizations actually exist on Earth right now in the form of termite colonies or ant colonies or beehives, because we still don't really understand very much about how non-human animals communicate. We do have lots of hints that they build sophisticated civilizations. I mean, ants build cities, they have farms, they ha- they have farms where they have basically ranches. They like keep, you know, aphids that are kind of like cows. Um, they mm. grow fungus, kind of like the way we grow corn. So, maybe we've just misunderstood and actually we're the kind of unsophisticated lumbering beasts and the ants are the ones who are the true civilization and when you know creatures arrive from another world they're going to be like oh there's these weird blobby monkey creatures like get them out of the way we really need to talk to like the ants you know
0: that would be a great science fiction story Okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us at Patreon at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct and if you join at one of the upper levels you can ask us questions like that and we'll answer it on the podcast. Also we're on Twitter at OOACpod Thank you so much to our incredible, valiant brilliant audio producer Veronica Simonetti and thanks so much to Chris Palmer for the music and thanks again to you for listening. Uh, you can find us wherever podcasts are found online If you haven't already subscribed, please do subscribe. If you like us please leave a review in one of the reviewing places. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. But if you're a patron, we'll have an audio extra next week. And we'll also be seeing you on Discord. Bye! Bye!